Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Welcome to Shilor Select. The whole system will be ready in a few minutes. Take your seat and enjoy. All right. We're on fire right now. We're rolling. So, uh, so you, you said you've been in Tennessee. You never lived in Virginia. I never lived in Virginia, but I lived I lived in Tennessee for uh, it was my primary residence for seven years, but two and a half of those years were in Guatemala. It was it was Tennessee, but it was not your usual Tennessee. I lived on the farm, the world's largest hippie commune, which was uh, was in Tennessee. It was about sixty miles south of Nashville. The world's largest hippie commune. Hippie commune. Well, let's, yes. let's talk about that. Okay, I've never. Okay, even heard that's of a that. good place to start. Yeah. yeah. So, t- well, tell me a little bit about that. I get. Well, I don't really like doing introductions and stuff like that, just no, because I feel no, it's we, not we natural. Just, but uh, Dr. Jeremy Sherman's in the house. Um, you specialize in uh, uh, what's the word am I looking for? Psychoproctology, right? That's one of the things I work on. Okay. Is, uh, psychoproctology, which is the diagnosis, treatment, and prevention of uh, butthead behavior. Okay. okay. Trying to understand what the butthead lifestyle is all about. Well, we'll give everyone the background. Well, let's start, uh, start with this hippie <laughs> commune you got going it's on. It's a hippie commune. So, um, I'd led a pretty cushy life. I, uh, grew up in, in Chicago and then I moved to uh, a boarding school. Um, I inherited a bunch of money at 16. I felt guilty about it cause I didn't, I, I didn't feel like I had earned it or deserved it. Um, I went to college for a couple of years at Santa Cruz, which was a really cushy school back then. It wasn't like Virginia Tech. It was looser than that. You get university credit uh, for um, California University credit for keeping a dream journal. Dream journal it was bad. It was soft. Really? No, it was pretty <laughs> soft. I mean, there was some good stuff going on there. And I ended up uh, uh, studying with a guy who ended up being important to my research later, a guy named Gregory Bateson who was teaching there. But the place was like a Garden of Eden. And finally, I thought it was just too cushy. And I decided I got to go out and see the world and go work in the world because I had lived this kind of abstract uh, life. I didn't know what I wanted to do with myself. And I it found out about this commune in Tennessee, which sounded right up my alleys. It was, it was not your usual commune. It was not a free love commune. It was, they called us the Technicolor Amish. We were, we were hippies, but you didn't have sex unless you were engaged to be married. You worked your, like a dog all day long. We built 175 buildings from scratch, mostly out of scrap uh, wood. We had 1,400 acres. Half of the people who lived there were kids. So we had doctors and lawyers. We were a serious attempt to do some good in the world. Uh, two and a half of those years I spent in Guatemala, 
uh, as part of the commune's Peace Corps. Um, so I did water projects in Guatemala for two and a half years and engineered and designed and, and organized water projects, get water to uh, rural villages. So that was my connection to Tennessee. I did live in Tennessee for a while. <laughs> okay. So, so you inherited a bunch of money when you were 16. Yeah. And so when I joined the commune, I, I signed a vow of poverty. I gave up what I had then. I got some later, but I gave up what I had. It was, uh, that's a bold uh, move. Very bold move. One would could say uh, more courageous than smart. <laughs> more courageous than smart. I like that. So, so you started this hippie commune sixteen years. Is that what you said? So no, no, no. So I I I joined at twenty. You joined it, and then I left it about uh, uh, at twenty seven, twenty six or twenty seven. Okay. And um, I came out to California. My folks were out here by then. Okay. Um, they had moved from uh, Chicago, and. Uh, and then did a then did a bunch of uh, a combination of uh, of activism, a lot of environmental and uh, nuclear activism, and um, and schooling. So I did a I finished my undergrad degree, got a master's in public policy at Berkeley, and then got really interested in the stuff that I have been following up on ever since, which is a um, it's base, it's called evolutionary epistemology. It's a cross between decision theory and evolutionary theory. You're trying to understand how organisms interpret and respond to their circumstances. That's what it's about. You're talking about All carbon life base forms when you say organisms? No, actually, it, it, it's actually broader than carbon life. But, okay. uh, I mean, it, 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 you could call it um, – some people call it general biology it's a, or astrobiology. That is, it applies – you're looking for the what it would, what it would take – for you can say the most fundamental question, one one half of my work is on trying. Organisms try; they struggle for their existence. Your, your microphone doesn't try. Your desk doesn't try. DNA molecules aren't trying. Trying is something unique to organisms. They're struggling for their own existence. So, what is trying, and how did it start? Is kind of a fundamental question. Yeah. And nobody asks it. We all we're all self obsessed. And we all are trying and trying to figure out what to try to do, but we rarely step back to ask, okay, well, what is, what ourselves and what is trying? And even in academics these days, they kind of avoid the question. I mean, check this out. If you went into a physics class and they said that the moon is trying to pull on the tides in order to achieve something, you'd think the guy was nuts. But yeah. right down the hall, a biologist or a psychologist can talk about motivation, appetite, all of that stuff. So there's this huge chasm. I, we, I, we, it's, it's, a, it's a realistic chasm. That is, in physics and chemistry, you don't talk about effort, trying, goals. There's no means to ends effort and goals in, in, in the physical sciences. But in the life and social sciences, you can't do without them. You can't do without talking about motivation and all of that stuff. So I ended up, I, I ended up landing... Uh, a close friend, a student first, and then close friend and colleague for 25 years with a Harvard neuroscientist uh, who got really interested in this question. And he said, we got to figure it out. No smoke and mirrors. You've got to you start with simple chemistry and figure out how you could ever get a system that is trying to keep itself going. And that, so in back to your point about carbon life, yeah, it's, it's pretty likely. Carbon is a, is a likely molecule to be, uh, working with this occurrency for a whole lot of what's going on with us, but what we what we're 
what we're focused on would apply even to non-carbon life forms if we could, if they're, if it's possible in the universe. So in that sense, yeah, it's like astrobiology. And then beyond that, I do what you would call astropsychology. That is, what would be, what are the likely things you'd get in an intelligent life form anywhere in the universe? Um, you know, we only have this one example of a intelligent life form. If uh, here I'm using intelligent to mean language using, right? I mean, all organisms are intelligent one way or another, and the word intelligent is really squirrely. We don't, it could mean all sorts of things. You mean humans compared to animals? Yeah, humans compared to animals, but even I go, I go further than this is, is to say that, um, you know, I'm interested in how trees are trying to stay alive. They don't feel like they're trying to stay alive. They're not conscious of it. They can't talk about it. They have no self-awareness. And yet you, you've got to admit they're hustling to regenerate themselves faster than they would otherwise degenerate. They do so, have their own little, well, not little, but it's like a language that, or an unspoken language where they know if they're being eaten and how to grow, don't they? No, that's what, so, so there's a big difference between language and other kinds of signs. So this is all, this is another part of the work, which is called biosemiotics. Okay. So semiotics is a study of how significance happens. So uh, something, something becomes significant for an organism that is trying to achieve something. If you're not trying to achieve anything, then nothing is significant. So nothing significant to my table, nothing significant to my computer, but things are significant to a tree and it does respond to signs. There are sign relationships or sign processes, but language is a different thing. Language, you, you've got this whole collection of, you could say arbitrary sounds or signs, markings, that by social convention are held to mean something. And each one of those signs is part of a whole system, the whole system of signs that is our language. So it makes us a radically different creature from, let's say, a tree or even a dog. Because they, they all use, they, yes, they respond to signs, but those signs are called iconic or indexical. Indexical meaning that if a dog barks, um, it's associated with something. But it's very different from you and me talking right now. So there's a radical difference between indexical signs and language, at least in the school of thought that I follow. And yeah, so it, it, that's so you could say if you want to distill my work down to three things, it's what is trying, how did it start? Mm -hmm. Trying, trying would be also about adapting to reality. Then the next question is. Um, what difference does it make that we have language? We're adapting to reality under the influence of language. We humans are. And then the third question is, uh, is actually related to the, uh, to the second one, psychoproctology. That is, there are lots of predators and parasites in this world, but I would say that asshole, being an asshole is a human thing, and it's a product of having language. That is, you can do things with language that you can't do with other kinds of science systems. You can, you can make believe, you can pretend you're bigger than reality, all sorts of things like that. So those are my three big questions. And I call the whole circuit cradle to grave. It's from the origins of life to our grave situation these days. Because I think most of us would agree that one big problem could cause our extinction is assholes. But there's a challenge there because nobody's got a clear definition of a, what is a butthead. Can't just be whoever you butt heads with. Well, so how so do you mean... That an asshole will could end uh, the human extinct or end humans civilization. Well, the, yeah, that's. I mean, that's by having a dictator a, or, or somebody. Who oh, just, it could be. Uh, what, no, what, so what it could be. Saying? Yeah, no. So a dictator certainly could do it. Um, 
dictators with nukes. Um, That's usually what I think, like a solar flare will hit the uh, solar grid or whatever. There are not the solar yeah. grid, but the electric grid and that will cause a huge power outage and there's, or there's, we'll drop a bomb on ourselves. And Yes, yeah, so a drop a bomb or the, there are other possibilities as well. I mean, for example, I'm my guess is that climate crises have happened multiple times in the universe already and that climate crisis denial would also have happened okay. many times because of language we would uh, denying that we're we are causing problems is something that you can do with language animal has a harder time denying they can't rationalize not paying attention to damage that they're doing. They can do lots of damage to themselves. You know, an animal could get addicted to something that would kill them, you know, but, but, or, or could eat something that's bad for them. But, but the ability to, to collectively deny some danger to us or to focus on other dangers instead, that's, you got to have language to do that. Well, animals uh, the, are probably more worried about, I didn't mean to cut you off there, but animals are no, no, more no, worried totally about not. survival of the fittest, right? Rather than, uh, yeah. You know, yes. Yeah. So one of my one of my heroes says uh, the instinct to survive is strong. The instinct to alleviate fear is stronger. Ooh, I like that. Yeah. A guy named Stephen Cull. He's a psychologist who was who was studying. He, he did very close uh, research in nuclear planners. Um, you know, trying to understand what's going on in their minds as they as they calculate out the hundred million deaths and whether it's worth it or not, that kind of stuff. So he, yeah, instinct to survive is strong. The instinct to alleviate fear is stronger. So when so, you said calculate million deaths, like if it's worth telling somebody about, hey, there might be a bomb threat into this city, and whoa, no, or did and I so misread that, or did I misread that? Well, okay, so uh, no, no, you didn't misread it. Um, uh, here's an example. I'm, I'm next door neighbors here, not next door, but we get together for lunch every month or so. Dan Ellsberg. I don't know if you know that name. No. They, they made a movie about him a couple of years ago, The Most Dangerous Man in America. Dan Ellsberg was the guy who founded a field called behavioral economics. Okay. Then he was one of Kennedy's whiz kids. And then he exposed the nuclear plant, the Vietnam. He wrote the Pentagon Papers. Okay. So, I've heard. Okay. I know the Pentagon yeah, yeah. Papers. Okay. So we get together for, for lunch often. He's now 90 years old and wow. yet really smart. And he says the one thing he's taken from all of his career is that people can be as stupid as they need to be to keep it, their jobs. People can be as dumb as they need to be to keep their jobs. Uh, so that's also about alleviating fear. So all of that stuff is interesting to me. And he'll describe, because he was in the central, he was top, top secret planner. He was in on all the planning around this. And yeah, you've got these guys who are, whose job it is to calculate, okay, if we can do $200 million, uh, 200 million deaths, in an enemy's country mm -hmm. and it costs us only a hundred million. Is it worth it? Now, Dan at this point just balks at all that stuff. So he just put out a book confessions of a nuclear planner, but that's the kind of stuff that, that, that led that other guy, Stephen Cole to say the instinct to survive is strong. The instinct to alleviate fear is stronger. It's just a, you know, these guys. 
I feel like uh, I feel like I'm too stupid for this conversation right no, now. No, 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 I was, I, no. We, <laughs> no, no, I mean, I, I mean, no, no, it's no, a bad no, thing. No. You're like you're blowing my mind, and like, well, sorry. No, sorry. no, don't don't apologize. I'm I'm loving it. I'm enjoying this. Good. I'm glad to hear that, man. Yeah, yeah. It just uh, I was just like, wow. Just, I didn't well, we can take it anywhere you want. It's no, totally it's fine, fine. man. So, uh, I, I'm sorry. All right, let's, well, let's kind of circle back here. Um, yeah, because yeah. I've been having these thoughts, and then I'm like, I'm trying to write stuff Good, down yeah. at the same time, and. Sorry, remember. Right, and so, I and I, I can talk fast when I'm talking about the stuff that I hey, man, that I know good. and love. It's all good. <laughs> just just remember, you might have to explain things to like a you're talking to a five year old or something. So, um, so when you say what is trying, is that just trying to anything in life, or is this having something to do with? You know, I've been re, uh, not li- watching, listening to some podcasts with Sam Harris, and his yeah. talks about free will versus determination. Yeah, yeah. And I also just read his uh, his book about it. So is that kind of relatable? Yeah, so it is related. Okay. So so my book on that subject is called Neither Ghost Nor Machine, The Emergence and Nature of Selves. And basically, it's about selves and trying. So what is a self? What is trying? Fundamental questions. Now, Sam Harris, I love his work, but I think... I think what he says about this is nonsense. I mean, so he would be a guy who's basically, you got several camps on this question, what is trying? Some people will say, well, there's not really any trying because if you look at everything going on in your body, none of it violates the laws of physics and chemistry. So you're just a machine. Um, some people say, no, there's some trying even in the chemicals. So that's, they have, they have names for these different schools of thought. Yeah. Uh, um, so he, he and a guy like Robert Sapolsky, who's been on a show, uh, they are part of a fashionable movement right now that I think boils down to this. Though you might try to believe that you try and believe you don't. Or another way to say it is convince yourself that you're not a self. It's all pretzel logic at that point. I mean, for you to even, for someone to even say, and a human doesn't have free will. I think the whole free will question is framed badly. But, but, uh, but if, if you want to say, okay, no, hu- no human has free will. It's all determinate. We're just machines, cause and effect machines. Right. Um, uh, like they would say, um, or at least they would imply, they might not back themselves quite into that corner, um, but they, some would, some wouldn't. Um, then why call us humans? What distinguishes us? What's the difference between a living thing and a non-living thing? I mean, I do know people who think that it all just amounts down to mechanism. Okay, if so, you don't care if you die. You're, you're, why would you care if you die? Why would you, if you could, if you really were just a machine, you might as well uh, talk your talk and stop using words like I or want or any of those words, you just try living that way. It's bullshit. You can't do it. You know, we, we, it's so obviously, it's so obvious that we're trying. It's so obvious that our computers aren't. And yet we are living through a period. Uh, my research colleague, this guy, Terrence Deacon, calls it the perfect storm. When you get computers and all that DNA research, you come to the conclusion, well, it's all just mechanism. We'll, we'll be able to come up with mathematical analysis that will generate all of our behavior. So we're saying we're saying something different. So the the people who say there is no trying, there is no. Let me back up for a second. The the reason I think the free will debate is is poorly formed 
is that you got people who assume will and argue that it's free and people who deny that there's will. Nobody gets around to the question, what is will? And if you don't have an answer to the question, what is will and how did it start? Don't expect to get anywhere with this thing about free will versus determinant. What is will? Will is wanting to achieve something. And I say it starts way before humans. It starts with organisms uh, working to, to, to avoid degenerating. Because that's the thing about us. We, we, everything degenerates in the world, in the universe. So like, the, like today, I had a kind of a slouchy day. I didn't get much done. But I did manage to, to regenerate 240 billion new cells. Mm. I, that's a lot of hustle. And I did that without even thinking about it, not knowing how I did it. That's all trying. Well, so when you How say what is will, I mean, and and I, you know, and yeah, I, yeah. I don't, I'm still on the fence of free no, will good, versus determinism because I'm still trying. I, I like to hear both sides before I try. To, yeah, but it's, and I'm suggesting a third thing, which is not free will or determinism. Correct. That's my point. But right. uh, but what if I guess an argument would be if somebody said, "All right, you say what is will?" Would somebody say, "Well, your will is predetermined in some factor, and that it would come subconsciously in your." Brain, I guess. Yeah, the, 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 I think some of the problems comes from starting at the level of humans. So okay. in our research, we're, we're saying, if you really want to understand what will is, don't start with us. The way my buddy uh, Terry describes it is to try and understand will starting with humans is like trying to understand hair starting with porcupines. I mean, those quills are their hair, but they're highly evolved and adapted and peculiar to the, the porcupine situation. You would rather start with patient zero. You'd try to figure out what the very first system that tried to keep itself going, not just enduring by durability. Mm-hmm. You know, my, my, my desk is going to stick around a while because it's more durable than I am. I am not like that. When I die, I'm going to start decomposing pretty quickly. I'm pretty perishable. So I'm someone who's got to hustle all the time. And you want to figure out, okay, what would the first hustling thing look like and how would it have emerged from simple chemistry so that's where our work is and then from that you get you you get all sorts of interesting ideas i mean i've written 950 articles for psychology today about everyday human decision making and i do that all based on my understandings of motivation which is another word for mill for will Mm -hmm. um, that i get from looking at the origins of life I mean, I'm one of the few psychologists out there who has a working theory of what motivation is. In psychology, you mostly analyze motivation as by its consequences. You know, so if you if you went out of your way to get some food, I'd assume that you had a motivation to get food. But if you ask a top level psychologist, what is a motivation? They'll say it happens in a body. They'd say it involves chemistry, but the chemicals themselves don't have any will. So where the hell is it? That's the question that I've been dealing with for 25 years with Terry. Well, yeah, where the hell is it, though? I mean, does it come from, you know, a lot of people, when I say a lot, I think uh, yeah. Jordan Peterson was talking about your gut biome, saying that if you get used to eating certain foods and like sugary, high-carb foods, yeah. that your gut biome will automatically start changing and wanting that type of food and reflect to your brain, like, hey, go get that type of food. So. Yeah, that's uh, that's true. But uh, so another angle at this is that organisms interpret and interpretation is different from cause and effect. So stop don't stop signs don't a stop sign doesn't cause you to stop unless you crash into it. 
You stop at a stop sign because you was you would interpret it as about something for your uh, for you about your circumstances for you your given your here. yeah. Your so so interpretation is somewhat different from cause and effect, um, and we and in the sciences they tend to blur that distinction. And that was so. Yeah, Jordan Peterson's right. Your body, but but it's not just cause and effect. It's not just a machine. It's interpretation. Your body interprets something as uh, as something to depend upon, and therefore that's one of the motivations. That's still not an explanation. That's just a description. So yes, I'm I'm really big on um, the role that habits play. So for example, these days I I reject the notion that. Uh, assholes are narcissists. I don't think they're necessarily self-infatuated. I think you can easily be, you, you stumble on some words that get you what you want and they become a force of habit. So you start, you start using these tricks that, why? Because they're habits. It's like if you start to feed your biome something. So habits are really fascinating to me. I think of the, the mind not as a computer, but as a virtual computer generator. As my mind is always looking for ways to turn things into habit. And yeah, but, but that it does that by means of interpretation. That's not cause and effect. That's not, that's not machine stuff. So you said something about narcissists. So what's, yeah. uh, what's, uh, maybe go down that road a little bit. We talked about free will and determination and you gave me a third one, what is trying. So, but so what causes a person to be a narcissist? Is it their environment they grew up in? Is it, I just inflated ego they receive somewhere down the road. Is it a chemical imbalance or is it how, you know, we talked about you or you talked about human origins. Yeah. Is it human origins evolved to have this since it does work yeah. in the animal kingdom? I've read a couple uh, yeah. articles on that about how it works. Yeah. 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 So, so um, I would say that by the standards that have been the, the only standards for 3.8 billion years, that is, uh, the only game in town was biological reproductive success, having it, it was uh, benefits for you and your lineage, then a narcissist or an asshole is highly evolved. That is, if you think about what they're doing, it fits right in with, with nature. Um, it doesn't fit in with, uh, with our, our, our standards as humans. With humans, we get language, we get a, a, a different kind of empathy, uh, we can get interested in taking care of more than just our own genes and our own biological reproductive success. We become addicted to each other through our society. I mean, I'm addicted to sure microphones because they made this microphone for me. <laughs> so I'm willing to go out and make money and hustle to get it. So that, so that's, that's pretty fundamental to it. But um, I would say that the big difference with humans and why you'd end up with narcissists and assholes is this. With language, we are overwhelmed by possibilities. And you think about what I could worry, when you think about what you could worry about at night to what a dog could worry about at night, it's just overwhelming the possibilities, real and imaginary, that humans can think about. Not just all the threats, but all the missed opportunities. We would be an anxious species. Language does that to us. It overwhelms us. And we don't, I don't think we take nearly enough stock of that. We would be an anxious species because we're just overwhelmed. But to take one example, we're the only organisms that can foresee in great detail our own deaths. So here we are throwing all into life, knowing we're going to be thrown out. Yeah. So 
That's enough to freak us out. We would be an anxious species. At the same time, language gives us ways to deny, ignore, rationalize, not thinking about anything that worries us. So all organisms engage in, you could say, selective interaction. They take in water, but they don't take in toxins. You know, they take, they, all of them have to do something that's like this. I'm going to let in some stuff and not other stuff. In humans with language, that becomes confirmation bias. And normal people recognize that confirmation bias is a problem that they have to manage. And assholes or narcissists treat confirmation bias as a solution to all their problems. How they get there, I think there's many roads to this, but the heart of it is this. You can get, if it works for you, if you can get away with doing that, denying anything that is difficult for you, why would you stop? Maybe if you had a conscience, but if you don't have a great conscience, you just keep doing it because after all, it's reaping you all of these benefits. Why would you stop? So you can fall into it from any path, this business where confirmation bias becomes the solution to all of your problems, where you simply deny and deflect anything that's challenging and you take in anything that's affirming, just like an animal will take in food but not toxins. Right. Uh, to, we're, we're maintaining our mojo. We have to do that. And if you're, if you got a little bit of conscientiousness, you take in some criticism from time to time, maybe not at first, maybe you deny it. But you, if you, if you can just imagine whether you had a hard childhood or a, or cushy childhood, one way or another, if you land on this habit where you just deny anything that's challenging to you and you can get away with it, it would be, it would take a degree of discipline that not everybody has. To swear it off. I mean, if someone offered you uh, that kind of benefit, you'd kind of lean into it. You said humans seem to be overwhelmed. Do you I think, say, I, yeah, yeah. Do you think that's because of modern society today with social media that, and screens? And that compounds it. But I think the problem actually starts more fundamentally than that. I think it starts with language. Like I said, your dog doesn't have language. That means it can definitely worry about some things at night. It has feelings. It has emotions. Your dog does. Yeah. But it doesn't have this capacity to extrapolate out to all sorts of possibilities. And so you got, so once you have language and once you're living among people who are as twitchy as language users are, mm-hmm. that is, we're all a little, we're all a little uh, hair trigger with language. It, we were extremely unpredictable. Dogs are more predictable than us. Chimps are more predictable than us. Um, we, and then you combine that with the power of the printed word, and then you combine it with the internet. Yes, those would certainly exacerbate the problem. But I think the problem was here from very early on for humans. You know, 50, 100,000 years ago, we were already dealing with all of the possibilities that language afforded us and all of the complexities of society, not all of them. It's gotten way more complex, but, but yes. And so, so I would say the epidemic of narcissism or whatever you want to call it, I would say it's cultishness or narcissism or, or assholia, you know, whatever, whatever you want to call it. I think a lot of that also has to do with the fact that we have the internet. You know, we're just going through a, we're going through a burst of that stuff right now. So I want to touch on language a little bit. Just yeah. So, yeah. when did language start? Were you are we talking about, like the you know, 
you, know, you some, have a dog. That's yeah, nice. yeah. And this, is, I, I should have mentioned that before we started this. Uh, I got two little wiener dogs, and apparently when I start doing great. this, that's they, great. That's they great. love to go crazy. And then started, no, because I was using I was using the example of you and your dog. Yeah, no, it was perfect. So I was just staring right at them, and then of course they had to make sure they get in on here. But all right, that's so right. almost that's my train of thought. But so you talk about what is language, and so with language, how do I want to word this that. So when did we start, or when, when I say we humans start using language, was this because of, you know, you said chimps are very predictable. I mean, is this part of stone ape theory? And then all of a sudden when, you know, we, uh, when humans invented fire that our brain doubled in size because we could actually cook our food. And No, so the, so the details of this are in the first book that uh, my buddy wrote. So he, his first uh, uh, 10 to 20 years at Harvard were spent uh, on trying to understand uh, the evolution of language. Okay. And so he wrote a book called The Symbolic Species. Um, and when I first read it, before I'd met him, I cried because it was actually too hard for me to understand. It wasn't that it moved me. It's just terrified me. I felt like a fifth, uh, like a five-year-old. Oh, yeah, exactly what I was saying. Yeah, that's right. No, it's, <laughs> if you don't get that feeling every once in a while, you probably aren't it, learning. It helps you. I know that. So. Yeah. So, um so he rejects the idea that it's a doubling in size of the brain. He shows how, so he's a neuroscientist and he's showing how different regions of the brain became specialized. So the book covers both the anatomy of what's going on in our vocal cords that made it possible, the, the neuroanatomy of what was changing, the cultural evolution that made it possible. And he would argue, so he calls the book the symbolic species. Mm-hmm. And in semiotics, you talk about iconicity or icons, indexes, and symbols are the main three categories in semiotics. Icons are an inability to distinguish between two things. So like a trash icon on your computer, that's it, it resembles, it, co- it corresponds by resemblance. So I see it and it reminds me of a trash can. But also, if you, if you look away from me for a second here and then turn back to look at me, I'm iconic of the guy you were talking to before you looked away. It's a failure to distinguish. Iconicity actually starts as a failure to distinguish. So camouflage is iconic of the background. It's not like you look at the camouflage and say, oh, wow, that looks just like the stuff behind it. It's a failure to distinguish. Indexicality is where something is representative by correspondence in time and space. So Pavlov's dog, the bell ringing. That's indexical of food. That's trained indexicality. Animals, animals have iconicity and indexicality. Symbols, this third category, is a radically different thing. Where you got these ty- uh, tokens of a type. You have words in a language. And you can combine them and mix and match them in infinite possibilities. You can generate as many of them as you want. But the interesting thing about symbols is that they have to be tied to reality somehow. So if I simply said to you the word hard right now, it wouldn't make any sense. If I point at my desk while saying hard, you know what I'm talking about. That is, I have to make an indexical connection. And then with grammar, I'm able to do that about things that are not even present. Like the Washington Monument is hard. Washington Monument isn't here. Mm-hmm. It's not corresponding in time and space. I can be completely disassociated from the thing. I don't have to be near it at all to talk about it and do all sorts of work with it. 
So, I mean, so for example, I could, I could say to you, uh, yeah, picture a hippopotamus in a tutu balancing the universe on the end of its nose while whistling Dixie. And you could picture it. I just did. Yeah. So, and, and, and you'd never pictured it before, but you can do that sort of thing um, with language. You can't do it with the, any, any of the others. So, so Terry's argument is that the first symbols were probably related to um, uh, mating conflicts when we were hunting in groups. You had to hunt in groups because we were basically scavengers mm -hmm. picking up the bones and all uh, 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 at hyena sites and lion sites and then bringing back uh, meat to provision women who had to stay back from the hunt because of the kids. Um, and there's this big challenge in evolutionary biology, mother's baby, father's maybe. Uh, you don't know who the father is, you know who the mother is in all cases. And it's very maladaptive for a guy to be uh, provisioning, providing male parental investment to someone else's offspring. It's a good thing to do, it, but it's not, I mean, for humans, it's, it's fine. Divorced fathers sometimes do a good job. I mean, <laughs> you know, what I'm saying is uh, next fathers, stepfathers. But, but, but it is, it does rack our brains a little bit. So one of the big, he, he speculates and he doesn't bank on this thing. It's not a big part of the story, but it's what everybody ran with because it was kind of racy was this idea that the first symbols would have probably been marriage rituals mm. where, and that language came later. Interesting. But we're talking about, uh, we're probably talking about a hundred million years ago at the, uh, no, sorry, hundred thousand years ago to maybe three million years ago. And it's, that's not something I, I know in detail. So I never became the neuroscientist working with Terry and uh, nor am I a, uh, an anthropologist. He's an anthropologist. He teaches biological anthropology at Berkeley now oh, and nice. neuroscience. Nice. But, uh, but so, so the details on when it happened are less the point for me. The, 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 what's interesting to me is how it changed us. We're, it's, we're like drunken sailors. We're like, we're like, I think a confirmation bias is like if you were, yeah, you probably saw Men in Black. You remember the oh, airport? Oh, with trip? Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones. Yeah, yeah, I no, that's that a movie. great movie. You're right. Okay, so imagine if you were on LSD, and you were uh, a uh, a customs guard there, and you're trying to let in the right things and not the wrong things, and you're on drugs. That's what <laughs> I think of. That's what I think of as uh, as adapting to reality under the influence of language. It's just, it, I just want to appreciate what a challenge it is for this species. We're a mid-sized mammal, no big deal, except we got language and we've got tools, a lot of them about language, but also because we have the prehensile thumbs and all that business. But, um, but we, are, we are really a weird in evolutionary experiment. If we go extinct anytime soon, we will have lasted two seconds if you collapsed the entire universe's history into one year, we're, I mean, we're just like this tiny little thing. And it doesn't surprise me that we're, we're, we're challenged and at the, at risk of extinction because we're overwhelmed by possibilities and we can escape them all through lip service. We can just say, Oh no, that doesn't matter. Yeah, so true. that's where the interest, that's where the interest in assholes come from. Okay. <laughs> well, what is the future of language? Um, I've read a well, I heard it on a podcast that emojis might become a universal language among. Yeah, yeah, they, they are, and they're they're icons. Yeah, 
And so in a way, we much prefer uh, the simpler forms. Language is more complicated. You know, reading a book is, is for most of us, harder than watching a movie. It's very hard. In movies, you're, yeah, so movies are all, I mean, yes, there's, there's scripts for the movies, but you can have a whole lot of action totally understandable in terms of icons and indexes, including index fingers, someone points, or an eyebrow twitch. That's indexical of something for us. It's a, it's not a it's not a language, but it points to something in our behavior. Like body language, sort of. Body language, all that sort of stuff. So okay. so that's easier on us. And yes, we would try to go down to that level. Um, and I also am paying attention to the way words can be used like that. So when you get a cult and it has a slogan that they chant over and over, I don't think they're actually paying attention to the words. I, I think that I think that it's more, you could say, indexical at that point. That is, try this out. Okay. Here's something that's here's something that's indexical about our language. It's called prosody. It's the music of our language. Na 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 na. So prosody is a direct expression of our emotions. It's like an involuntary call. It's like what other animals do. That so we have that in common with animals. I'm saying that words themselves can become just emotional braying. That in animals, you know, you get them braying for what they want or barking like your dogs did a minute ago. That stuff they do, it's all indexical. And I'm saying the indexical stuff that we humans do would sound like words. That, if I, that I would say a cult, you could take any cult. I mean, I happen to be someone who believes that the Trump movement is a cult. I could give the reasons. I won't bother here. But take the Stalinist cult. Doesn't matter. I don't care. Um, you take a cult like that, and you you look at what their what their message is. It's got nothing to to do with content. Mm -hmm. They don't mean a word they're saying. All their message is is get out of my way. My impulses rule. That's all. So in that sense, it's actually like brain. So you can even do that with language. It'll sound like words to those people who are gullible enough to think these people think or believe something. They sound like words, but no, they don't have to be words at all. You simply, you find a white hat word and a, a black hat word. So I could just say, I mean, I can make up a white hat word. Uh, uh, let's say I go see a Marvel movie okay. and I see Iron Man. And I see, I say that Iron Man is right about everything. He's a hero. He's wonderful. And um, and then I'm going to take Thanos and say he's evil. Right. And I come out of the movie theater and I say, OK, I'm lined with with Iron Man, uh, which means I will defend Iron Man. But also, if you attack me, you're attacking Iron Man. So don't you dare. If you do attack me, you're attacking Iron Man, which makes you Thanos. Mm -hmm. That's all you need in order to be. In my from my perspective, an asshole, you just have the, you have these two words. You use one about yourself and anything good. You just associate yourself with anything good through some code word. And you associate anybody who challenges you with a bad word. That's as simple as it can get. And in a way, that's like that's taking it down to the level of emojis. It's like that in a way. So it's the simplest way to feel doubt free. Anybody who attacks me is a traitor. You I, know. I can relate to that just because that um, I don't know. Do you know what CrossFit is? Yes. Yes. Okay. So I, just, I do. I, I'm a competitive CrossFit guy, and uh, before I, I don't hear it much anymore. But right when it first got going, I, yeah. actually, I think originated in California, honestly. But uh, almost people who hated CrossFit would say you're in a cult. 
It was a CrossFit cult. Yes. Yeah. And so it was automatically, if you said that, it's exactly what you just said. It's like, oh, okay. So you hate it, but this is where I stand. And so you're the Thanos where I'm the Iron Man kind of. Right. That's uh, yeah, right. So very much like that. that. And, and, and you'll get cults and counter cults as a result. So I just happened to read a book that's on a bestseller list someplace uh, these days uh, called cultish. And it's all about language and how cults use it. But it, it, it starts with uh, the standard spiritual religious cults. Then it goes into the clothing cults and then it goes into the exercise cults. And yeah, there have been exercise cults. The person who wrote this argues that CrossFit is one. I don't know. I, I only, I've only attended one CrossFit event and it was a party. It wasn't actually CrossFit. I don't (laughs) think I'm strong enough for it, but it was a a party of CrossFit people. They seemed happy and, 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 and I actually think we all need a bit of a cult or you could call it a club. I think, cl- I think religions are great. They're great clubs. I think this is at the heart of it for me. I don't think we can be realists all the time. I certainly can't. I think escapism is inescapable for an anxious creature like us. The trick for me is how to have that kind of escapism or that kind of community in a way that helps more than harms. So, uh, so I, I, so in a way I'm trying to demote the highfalutin clubs that borderline on cult to an elevated level for all clubs and for all escapism. So that's a whole other part of this work, but it is part of how I think we have to deal with the question of being a-holes. I don't think that everybody could be realistic. I certainly can't. I mean, I study full time, but it's just, I mean, I study all day long, but at night I I go off into fantasy land and I need to. For me, the trick is if I want to go off into fiction whatever form it takes, it could include masturbation. It could include going to church and thinking that you're part of the chosen people, whatever, whatever floats your boat. But so that it doesn't rock the waters for everybody else around you. The trick is you take your flights of fancy, but always with a return ticket to reality in your chest pocket, you got to come back. You can't go out to, you can't take your fantasies. You can't go see a Marvel movie and then go out and declare that it's more real than reality. And that, and in a way, there are a lot of groups that want you to, that, that want you to do that. Yeah. They want you to, I mean, I've been to a Trump rally. It was just really? like a metal. Oh, totally. I went to a Trump rally in uh, Tupelo, Mississippi. I told, I swear it was just like a metal concert. You, everybody's in cosplay. I mean, everybody's dressed up and you go inside and you, and you sing to the lyrics and you're not actually paying attention to what the lyrics mean. You're just going along. With That's it. not the point. You're, it's just part of a revving up about how, how badass we are as compared to all the idiots out there, just like a metal concert. Mm-hmm. But the, the, at the end of the metal concert, people get back to their cars and they go back to their lives. Whereas if you go to a Trump rally, a certain percentage of those people come away thinking that their fantasy was bigger than their reality. That's the only difference. So I'm all, I'm all for it. I'd be, I'd be fine with me if they had that rally. They just got to go home and straighten out and remember <laughs> that we're still living in this world. That's how I think about it. Uh. <laughs> Talking about cult and religion, uh, do you know who Joe Rogan is? Yeah. Uh, so he has a little bit about what's what's the difference between a cult and religion, and that the cult leader is still alive compared to a. Uh, oh, that's a, interesting. A yeah, a religion. So that's what I was saying. Yeah, about and I, you're talking it, about that. Yeah, yeah, it's related in a way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we had. Um, I actually worked for when when I said I'm near Virginia Tech. I actually worked for another university that's actually close to Virginia Tech, like literally. 
15, 20 minutes. So yeah. we actually had a Trump rally at our university where we have our basketball games. I didn't attend it, but uh, from what I, I knew some people who did go and what they told me, it was basically like what you said, a, a concert yeah. of almost. Yeah. No, it's just, it was wild. Yeah. It was wild, apparently. Yeah. it's Yes. I mean, I've only recently begun. I'm a bass player and singer. I just came back from a gig at, this afternoon, actually. Nice. But, um, but I didn't... Uh, I never got metal until a couple of days ago I was listening to it and I started to understand, okay, I, I can see this. So there's different musical tastes for different people and there's different, different clubs for different people. Sure. Uh, depending, but, but I think we all need to get our jollies off one way or another. We need these little mojo pit stops because life is just weird for humans. So we need a way to, 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 to go off on our flights of fancy. I'm all for it. How long have you been uh, playing bass? Oh, um, long enough problem? that I should be better. Uh, <laughs> I started about 13 and was very impressed with my uh, the ability to do simple things back then. But the bass is an instrument that has really uh, exploded, the techniques that you can use on it. So I've been chasing it down only for about 30 years. I actually got back into it at the uh, during a midlife crisis when my life was going really bad and uh, my my wife was no longer interested in me and I needed to put my love somewhere and it was a reliable place to put it. Um, I got serious about it then. So I played jazz and funk and soul, um, mostly that kind of stuff. Though I'll play, I actually play in a Nigerian band with these guys. One guy toured with Stevie Wonder. Uh, so um, yeah, I've been playing it late. I'd say, yeah, the last 30 years, I've probably been serious about it. And there are players who've been playing for for five or 10 years who are way better than me. My hands aren't very fast. Um, and, and I am drawn to the shredders on the bass. There are, I mean, it's just amazing what they've done with that instrument since, since it was invented. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we talked about overwhelming and being anxious and, uh, as a product of being lang of, of having language. Yeah. Yeah. So you found the bass. Is, is that because you found a, another passion to put your energy into as compared to somebody who could not, find that passion in their life that they, I well, guess. Well, no, 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 no. So this divorce was, it was fine. And we're good buddies now. Kids say they love us both, but they don't see what we thought we had in common. Okay. But, but, it, but it's, but we're great friends now, she and I, and, uh, but no, we, she, she, it's interesting. I had a conversation with my daughter who's now 31 about this. And I was telling her that she should, um, she should find something like that to do. And she said, so that when I, when I'm old, I can look back and, uh, and think I'd use my life well. And I said, no, not for that reason. I mean, when, when you're old, you're probably senile. And if you're cranky and senile, you'll make up a story about how your life sucked. And if you're cheerful, you'll make up a story about how your life was great. Don't, don't design your life around those last minutes. They're, they're, they are not the point. You need to have something like the basis for me. Because you're a loving person and you're going to go out and find loving people. And sometimes loving people are going to be off loving someone else. And you need a way to pick yourself up by the scruff of your neck and put yourself down in a corner and enjoy yourself alone. So that's what the base became for me. Um, it, it, you know, I, I, have, I have tons of friends and I've had lots of relationships since that marriage ended. Um, 
But the bass ended up taking on a life of its own. I think I got into it thinking that it would get me uh, get me groupies. Never did. <laughs> bass players. You know, bass players, we're the mouth breathers. Nobody in the band's interested in us, even though we're the very foundation of the thing. But, um, but a few years ago, I made a T-shirt that says, Sex is Music for Non-Musicians. Sex is Music, Sex is music for, for Non-Musicians. I mean, you, you can have so much sensual fun playing music. Um, that it does in a way, it, it, it has in a way um, taken over some of my, it, it has satisfied some of my self-soothing or sensual needs to play music. It's just, it's just a pleasure. And my daughter got into painting. That's what she got into and singing. But, but the point is, it's useful to have something like that. It's also related to that thing about escapism. You know, uh, if you get something reliable, whether it be a sport, could be CrossFit, something, mm-hmm that reliably gets you off and is reliably available to you. That's it's nice. back to the Peterson point. It just, it, you, you need those things. You need something to, you need something you can handhold with to get through this life. It's just too, the, wig, the world's too wiggly. <laughs> well, that's what seems to be a lot of issues that people can't find, I guess, uh, their tribe of what to get into and yeah. find out where they belong. And, you know, and I've, you know, one of another guy I work out with, we've done a couple of competitions together. He, he kind of explained his CrossFit as being, uh, how did he put it? It was, uh, just kind of, he didn't, it was, it was for misfits who people who wanted to work out, but didn't, couldn't figure out exactly how or where they wanted to do it. And then they find CrossFit and they get accepted into it. And, uh, and I guess, I, I mean, that almost kind of sounds like a cult right there in itself, but uh, it's. No, but but remember, it's not cult like if you know that you're. If you don't go out and tell back to the thing about Marvel movies, if you yeah. if you don't go, if you go home and get back to life, that's one thing. Here's an example. When I play bass at night. Often stoned. I'm in California. You can do that sort of thing out here. I don't know we just got legal in Virginia. <laughs> okay. All right. So um, I'll often imagine that I'm a badass bass player. That is, I'll toss my head back as though I'm Carlos Santana and I'll wail away and I'll think I'm really hot stuff. I know I'm not, um, but I do still harvest the benefit of thinking I am for those few minutes. Um and I, if I were to join CrossFit, I would feel a spe, uh, I would feel um, that I was doing especially difficult workouts. That's my impression of CrossFit: is that you guys are working out harder than the rest of us, yeah. um, and that that would be part of the fun. That is, I think that we need clubs in which we can feel exceptional, sure. or we need pursuits or hobbies in which we can feel exceptional, even if we're not exceptional. I mean, for me, the exercise, I'm 65 now. So my exercise is every day a half hour virtual reality uh, workout. In fact, I just had knee surgery. I'm one of the first people, I'm guessing, in this world who has a sports injury from VR. What happened there? This sounds like a great story. (laughs) So, but um, no, I get elated and then I take off the goggles and I'm back in my reality. That's all. Just Just take a return trip. Yeah, the flights of fantasy with a return ticket to reality in your heart pocket. That's all I'm saying. If we did that, we could, we could, we, it's not how far out you go. It's whether you come back. That's, that's my point. You got to bring it back somehow, right? Yeah. You got to bring it back. If you, if, if, if you go out far, if, if you go out even just a little bit and don't come back, that's closer to a cult than if you go way out and then come back. That's my sense of it. I like that. 
I mean, yeah. you can go out there and explore, but you need to come you back. To, right? Yeah, you go out there and get your rocks off. You can pretend you're God. Come back after. That's all. Exactly. I'm saying come back. Yeah. It's not just about exploring. It's also about thinking you're a badass. Everybody needs that. It, we need these mojo pit stops. It's just because because human life is hard. And if you don't get those pit stops, you'll start to you'll start to act weird around other people and try to live it out in everyday life. You'll play God in everyday life. That's not that's not good for us. I like that mojo pit stops. So, I mean, that's almost you know we were talking about narcissism earlier. I mean, somebody who becomes a basement narcissist just because they think they're living in their you know, and I don't, I'm not calling anybody out or saying this is great or anything by any means. But, you know, if you're living with your parents and you're in the basement, but you're also not getting the acceptance that you want in life just because you might be, I don't know, the best at a VR game or video game, but you also, but you think you are, then that might lead to a, almost a mental illness, maybe. Sure. Well, it, so there's, yeah, in a way, what I'm talking about is high functioning escapists. Okay. I, I, yeah. So, so as long as you're covering the bases, but also notice that uh, the parents are letting the kid get away with it. And um, and I've dealt with a difficult son who kind of was trying to, you know, you give him an inch and he'd take a, a lot. Um, so so I do think we have to make it cost the people who become legends in their own minds and can't remember that um, – can't remember to get a room for your self-love. You know, go get a room. You need to, you need to, you need to self-aggrandize. Cool. You're just like everybody else. Everybody else needs to self-aggrandize to get a room. Don't do it out in public. Don't do it where it costs everybody else. Don't float your boat by making the water choppy for everyone else. That's low functioning. High functioning is where you, where you get your rocks off and then you come back and you deal with people in a civil way how I think of it. No, I like that. Like, yeah. You go back and kind of reset your batteries. Yeah. It's a pit stop again. You just yeah. pump it up, you pump it up and then you go back out into the world. And I, if I were doing CrossFit and I wish I were, cause I wish I had, I wish I had guns like yours. Um, <laughs> they'd be hard to get at my age. I'd have to work three times as hard as you do. <laughs> um, but uh, no, if, if I were doing it, that's how I'd be doing it. And then afterwards I'd remember, okay, and I still live in this world and I have to deal with other people. And all well, that. well, that's what me, uh, one of my friends, I can, we, we had a competition last weekend and it's very humbling and that you go and do that. And then you come back home and you almost go in there almost with some big dick energy, I guess I'll just go ahead and say yeah, that. No, that's and, right. That's yeah, right. Yeah, and then and, I have to go into gigs like that too. <laughs> yeah. And, but I mean, and you do well, but you know, sometimes you don't always come out as good as you do, but you know, we drove home at night and we were just kind of reflecting on the whole competition. It's like, Hey man, you know, just some things just happen like that. And it's very humbling, but you get still get back to it. You reset. And, yeah, and yeah. you know, this was last Saturday. So we took Sunday off Monday. We were back at it doing our regular training. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. It's a, it, yeah. That's, um, but it's almost good to be humbled and to, uh, you know, oh, lose, yeah. lose sometimes just because, you know, I guess everybody, I mean, you know, I would think LeBron James and Tom Brady and great athletes like that, they, you know, they've had to deal with the same thing. But, and what a lot of people don't get is that, you know, they get butthurt if they, when they lose and then they just want to forget about everything in life. Yeah. And that, yeah, that can happen too. I, I, I've long said the, the better I get at not being the best, the better I'll get to be. Ooh. 
The better I am at not being the best, the better I'll get to be. It's not if you can read that in a way that actually applies to those guys who get butt hurt. That is, there are people who say, well, I'm not the best. So what? I don't care. But if you're trying to get good at something, as I have in my life, the exposure, um, you could call them cosmic wedgies, where I'm pulled up short, suddenly like, oh, man, it turns out I'm not nearly as far along as I thought. I mean, for example, I wrote one book 12 times. It's still not published. I still like it. I wrote a 350-page book 12 times. Um, And I didn't mind. For me, happiness is having work for which I have infinite patience. And that's so my writing work is like that. I just finished writing this book on psychoproctology. I threw out at least twice as many words as I kept in. That is, that's how, that's how it is when you're writing. But um, I have, I have what I call editorial self-efficacy. When I was writing it 12 times, I kept on thinking I needed a blank slate. But now when I look at something, I look at some of my writing and I think, oh, God, this is terrible. I can I know I have confidence that I can fix it. Um, but that only came about because I somehow had the patience to to stick with it through all that other writing. You know, it's it's just that's my CrossFit. I keep on coming back to it. I is, keep is on it wanting to say to, it better. Uh, self-publish that book. Um, actually, the, the, the psychoproctology book ends up containing most of the content that I would have wanted. This was another book. I actually did self-publish this one um, just to get it out of my life. It's called Negotiate With Yourself and Win, Doubt Management Skills for People Who Can Hear Themselves Think. Mm-hmm. And it's up on Amazon. I think it's got one, uh, one not-so-flattering review uh, I, I picked up the, I, I grabbed the old, the last copy I had of it and published it as is. I thought it was proofread. I don't think there, I don't think the proofreading was perfect. I still subscribe to what's in that book. It's a good book from my perspective, but, um, but I went on from there. And, and when I finished this book for Columbia university press, which I still think is, it's the book I wanted to write. I wrote it the way I wanted to write it. Um, I immediately started writing different versions of it. So I just, I'm dogged about this stuff because that's my happiness. My happiness is having work for which I have infinite patience. That's my idea of a good time. I'm not someone in the evening. I like to kick back, watch TV, practice bass, get stoned. But, uh, but when I'm working, I just love having, uh, like love generating new, new stuff new ideas mostly and writing them out and presenting them. Well, I mean, that's great. I mean, that's bold because, you know, kind of what we were saying earlier that I think a lot of people are afraid to take that step and they chose, they choose a life of less resistance and they don't even want to, they have these ideas, but they don't even want to act on them just because of, I guess, a a fear of rejection or a fear of, you know, not making it or not living up to certain standards. And there's a, yeah, I spent a, a lot of my early life not sure what I was good for, not sure what to pursue. I can relate. Um, and uh, and I know retirees who are in that situation. I know women who are dealing with what I'll call empty next syndrome. That is, the kids have grown up and their spouses left them and they don't have something that consumes them that way. And it looks to me like a kind of torture. I'm really glad I have things that consume me like that. I'm really glad for my addictions. I'm addicted to my work. I'm addicted to playing music. I'm addicted to self-expression, to, to working with colleagues. I have good addictions. Um, in, the, in the Peterson sense, my habits, I like them. 
I'm not saying they're good for the world. I'm not, I can't, I can't, I can't claim that. I'd be the last to know if they were bad. I'm trying to keep them good for the world. Mm -hmm. But all I can say is that they feel productive to me. They feel like a useful way to use my little notch of time being alive here, taking notes on reality, thinking it up a notch. That's what I do all day long. Um, and, uh, and yes, I think, I think we need those kinds of things. I have, you know, uh, my current girlfriend, she's a gardener. She loves gardening. Now, I never got into gardening, but, um, but, but for her, it's that kind of consuming thing. Uh, whatever it is, I think, I think hobbies and entertainment are actually necessities that we treat as electives. I don't think they are. I think we need them. I think, I think we need entertainment way more than we admit. It's, we need that escapism and we need hobbies because there are going to be times in your life when the world is not dealing you a bunch of cards and you got to have some form of self-soothing. So, and I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, so, trying to word this in my head real quick. So I think that, you know, we see a lot of success stories of people, you know, they're working, they're grinding it out. They're, uh, you know, they, they inflate their ego. They're, you know, Elon Musk, he was working, sleeping yeah. on his factory floor, uh, getting Tesla going and stuff like that. But, you know, you have to have these escapes, as you just said, but it's almost that can you succeed in your life without having an, an ego or just having, you know? Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, two things here. One is a generational difference. My life, I, I was part of this lucky generation that could actually afford to explore more in our teens. These days, if you don't have, if you don't have, Money and especially if you go into college debt, you you need to hit the ground running, or you're going to be in trouble. I agree. So so that's a that was a huge difference, and and many people are talking about these days how how this is unnatural and it's driving us nuts. This this much uh, need pressure to to be working all the time. You know, in Europe they have twice as much or three times as much vacation as we get. Uh -huh. So that's that's one piece of it. Um, the ego thing is interesting because these days there's still a whole lot of people who are talking what I consider to be nonsense about how we aren't really selves and uh, the biggest problems in the world come from having egos because uh, you got to face into the Buddhist reality that there is no self. And I just say, horseshit, not true. Every organism is selfish to some degree or another. Selfish like bluish kind of self kind of self-oriented you you couldn't possibly make it if you weren't hustling on your own behalf so the question is how to have a self not whether to have a self um you know it's interesting that, that i was i was accused of being arrogant the other day and um and my response is of, of course i'm arrogant um i'm trying to be arrogant in the right ways not the wrong ways it's interesting that the word arrogant, I could say, I could accuse someone of being arrogant or I could accuse them of being too arrogant. And they're treated as though they're the same. But it's interesting that there actually is a difference between the two. Um, too arrogant for a situation. That happens to me a lot. I'm sometimes too arrogant for a situation. Sometimes, sometimes I'm not arrogant enough for a situation, depending on what you define as arrogant uh, and, how, and how you think about how it applies in a situation. Um, one mathematician makes the argument, uh, it's interesting, anybody who declares someone to be arrogant 
is proclaiming themselves the neutral authority on who's arrogant, which is a pretty arrogant move. <laughs> you know, for, for someone to call you arrogant, that takes a certain amount of arrogance to simply declare that you sure. are that. So in general, with all of these supposed virtues and vices, I'm way more interested in how to apply them than whether to apply them. So for someone, I'm sometimes accused of being the name caller. You're a name caller. Yes, and you just use name caller, which is a name. And if I said you were a nice guy, that's also name caller. So where do you, how do, what do you mean by that? So the idea is that you can scold someone to, into submission by calling them a name caller. And I say to them, look, I don't want a name call. I want a name call with surgical precision. I want a name call where it helps, not where it hurts. I'm trying to figure out, I want the wisdom to know the difference between situations that call for name calling and not name calling. Whereas if you just pretend that this moral, you know, thou shalt never, you could never, the world would be ideal if no one had arrogance, if no one was a name caller. That's not living in this world. We obviously do both. You know, you can call arrogance different things. You can call it self-assertiveness, confidence, whatever. That was my next question. I mean, yeah, go ahead. Is, is there a difference in confidence and being arrogant? Yeah, so, so this, is, this is interesting. My, my guess is that there isn't. I call these counterspun pairs. So you get two words that mean the same thing, that they, they refer to the same thing, but with opposite connotations. So lying and tact, for example, or pig-headed and steadfast, or arrogant or assertive. My guess, when I look at those words and I try to operationalize them, I, the operationalize means, imagine I was going to hire a stranger to decide who has this trait and who doesn't have this trait. Mm -hmm. What advice would I, what definition would I give them? I think uh, there is no difference between them other than our prediction about how they'll come about, how, how they'll turn out. So first, I'm going to take, here's one more example of that. I think that love and addiction operationalized to the same thing. Ooh, okay. That is, your, yeah, I, I would say that they both mean you're doing dedicated work to maintain something that you depend upon. So what's the difference between addiction, which sounds bad and love, which sounds good. I would say the di difference is a prediction. If I think that you and your girlfriend are not going to end well for you, I might call it addicted. I could say you're addicted. If I think it's going to end well, I'd say, wow, great to see you in love. It's a prediction at that point. It's a, it's a, yeah, that's what, the only difference is that from what I can tell. That's an interesting thought. I've never thought about it like that. Yeah, I think it makes a huge difference in that the fact that we can be swayed around by these words that are just spun differently as if they're calling a spade a spade. You know, the guy, guy says, you're arrogant as if that's bad. Um, or he could have said, you're assertive, which is, sounds good. Uh, I want to be able to, to, to strip it of the connotation and look at the behavior itself and say, does it apply in this context? And I recognize that all lifelong, I'm going to be trying to figure out when, how to be not too arrogant and not too unarrogant. That is when to assert myself, when not to assert myself. That's what the serenity prayer is about. The courage to try to change things is kind of arrogant. The serenity to kind of accept things is kind of spineless. So I'm trying to I'm trying to find the balance and I don't any longer beat myself up when someone accuses me of being arrogant. I recognize that I am lifelong trying to avoid being too arrogant. I, you know, if I don't want to be a jerk, I have to expect some anxiety. And that means I if if I am 
if I am about as worried that I'm too arrogant as I'm worried that I'm not arrogant enough, I think that's the sweet spot. As long as I'm worrying on both sides of that, I'm probably fine. <laughs> well, can that lead to social anxiety? We're just worrying about, okay, I'm being too arrogant. I'm being too confident. Oh, totally. No, no, I mean, no, too. I mean, and, yeah. and you just and you just eliminate yourself and almost go into a complete shell and lock yourself out. Right. But this is, this is the point. If I don't want to be a jerk, I have to expect some anxiety. And then the question is, can I get used to appropriate human levels of anxiety? Um, because the last thing I want to do is be one of these twitchy people who's superstitious about all sorts of moral more morals that aren't real morals. They're just kind of like they're, they're, they're popular in society. So someone could say that you're uncaring. Um, and suddenly I'd be all, I'd be all beating myself up about it without actually looking at the fact that none of us can care about everything. Always. We have to be selective about what we care about. So that when someone says you're uncaring, I have to, I, my question is, am I being, too caring or not caring enough for this situation, given my aims, which include humanistic aims. I want to be good for people. But, I, but yeah, go ahead. Oh, yeah. Well, it's almost when you, you said morals that in society that if we go out and like you, you, you know, when you go out and you have lunch with your friends and also that I do the same thing or dinner, that we have to act a certain way. Right. Yeah. And you can't. But, just, but that's, that's true. But, but, but take. Take this frog for an example. There's, uh, there's frogs, um, they, their sexual selection works around how long they can keep croaking. So if they can croak a longer time, they're hotter to the females. So you got this frog, male frog, who's out there croaking like that as long as he can. On the other hand, um, if he croaks too much, uh, the predators know where they are. They can find them. They can okay. locate them. Yeah. So now, now, Overlap that onto a dinner. You're out with a bunch of buddies and this hot woman comes by and you got to croak some in order for her to see. But if you croak too much, those other guys going to take you down. <laughs> What's well, always peacocking. So, right. That's right. No, it's exactly, you know, the, yeah. do you know, the, pe do you know the peacock connection here? Uh, well, I just know that in college we used to make fun of people who would go out and just wear these extravagant outfits and right. Stuff. So yeah, peacocking is a great are. word for it. But peacocks are another. This is called the handicap principle in evolutionary biology, which is um, the peacock feathers are evidence to the female um, what they call a costly signal. That is, you can't have a spread like that unless you got really good genes. Um, and, and part of what's going on there, you need, you need really good genes to have a spread that looks healthy, but also those guys are carrying around that whole tail. That's a whole lot of, uh, of prey for predators to go after. It slows them down. Sure. So, so my point is we're all dealing with trade-offs and, and yet we'll talk still in this hyper-simplistic language of absolutes, what I call moral maximizing. You know, as though love is the answer everywhere, always, that you should always be loving. You could never have too much love. Bullshit. You, love is the question. What should you love? You know, how much should you show off? You got to show off some or else you're never going to get the job or, or whatever else you're after. How much is the question? Where? In what context? What should you do in context? There is no formula like eliminate all hate and maximize all love and the world will go around smoothly. Not like that. It's harder than that. 
<laughs> is it too cliche to ask that, you know, we talked about, you know, what is trying and then we talked about free will and determinism and, yeah. and you know, like some people may ask like, what is love? What is love? Yeah. I mean, so is that too I, cliche I'm, to even bring up? Or? No, no, no. I Actually, I gave you a definition a few minutes ago. It was the same definition I gave you for addiction. So check this out. Okay. You, you said that. Yeah. And, and actually, it's based on the origins of life work. That is, we have a chemical model for the, the, the first, you could say, synergistic relationship. Um, because you need synergy in order for, uh, for life to come about. But anyway, the, the, the definition, check this out. It's doing dedicated work to maintain something you depend upon. So what, is, what do I mean by dedicated work? Of all, today you could do, you could have done a jillion different things, right? But you didn't do it. You got to your to do list. How did you get to your to do list by preventing yourself from doing all those other things? That's dedicated work. You, you deliver, you were deliberate today, meaning that you didn't dither, you unliberated yourself, you, you employed your self discipline. So that's doing dedicated work. Of all the things I could do, I do these things to maintain this thing that I depend upon. How would I know if you're dependent upon something? Um, if, it, if it goes away, um, are you suddenly not half the man you used to be, as Paul McCartney sings? That is, are your, is your well-being impaired when this thing disappears? Now, by that definition, um, it, I'm actually in love with or addicted to grocery stores. And how did I get addicted to grocery stores? Well, my ancestors were farmers, but once there were grocery stores available, I stopped, I stopped having to farm and I lost the ability to farm. I actually don't know how to farm at this point. Um, now I am doing dedicated work to maintain access to grocery stores. Mm -hmm. I have a car. I had to buy a car. I had to have money, all of these other things. That's on the same spectrum. You may not call it love. It's not technically love in the human, emotional, sex, love, romance sense, but it, but it is nonetheless me doing dedicated work to maintain something I'm dependent upon. And, and in that sense, yeah, I think, and, and is it a good thing or a bad thing would determine whether you say he's addicted to grocery stores or whether he loves them. <laughs> Does genetic memory play into that about your farming? Uh, no, I wouldn't say genetic memory. I don't think genetic memory, but, but there are genetic equivalents. That's where we are actually seeing this first. So check this one out. Okay. Hit me. Okay. Um, uh, <laughs> I'm getting excited. Your dog, you don't have to feed your dog oranges and lemons. True. Dogs generate their own anti-rust, antioxidant vitamin C. Okay. Uh, almost all mammals do, except for us a few other primates and guinea pigs. So what the hell happened? We can find in humans the genes that in other mammals enabled them, enable them to produce their own vitamin C. But in us, it has become junk DNA. 35 million years ago, we hop up into trees off the savanna, and suddenly we've got two ways to get our vitamin C. We can generate it ourselves, or we can get it from the from this reliable source outside of ourselves, which is also in the business of being eaten because that's how seeds get dispersed. So we ended up addicted to external sources of vitamin C, and it's exactly like a heroin addiction, except it's operating at the generic genetic level. So if you if you think about it, I'm generating endorphins all the time. Endorphins are just morphine. 
And by the way, when you do CrossFit, you're, you're, you're getting high on morphine. That's what you're doing. Yeah. Your body has all this painkiller mechanism in you. Well, if you get an external source of morphine, you downregulate your own production of it. It takes about six months to kick back in if you go cold turkey. So you'll end and, and notice that when you get addicted to heroin, you'll start to do all sorts of dedicated work, including thieving and all sorts of stuff to get your heroin. Well, that's what we have to do about vitamin C now, because we're now ex- addicted to an external source of it. And in our case, it's not coming back. That gene is, is junk DNA now. So this is, the, the, this is called redundancy relaxation and in some cases repurposing. But redundancy means you got two sources of it. Imagine if you if 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 you're dating one person, you're totally dedicated to them, and then you start dating another person too, and now you have two sources of whatever mojo pit stop they are for <laughs> you, and then you could actually lose one and keep the other, and you'd be okay. So that's the relaxation of selection, relax what the relaxation of selective pressure. If before we came in contact with with vitamin C, if we lost that gene, mm-hmm. we die. Now we can lose that gene. It doesn't matter. We, we, can, we live on because we got the fruit and now we're addicted to the fruit. And by the way, a side story is that's how also white, that's why we have color vision. Primates got, we got primate, primates got color vision to distinguish between ripe and unripe fruit. So, I mean, this stuff, this stuff is wild, but check. Yeah. And why, why did we end up with color vision? Because before we were up in trees, we were out at night on the savannas. Yeah. And we needed all of the photons. All, we needed to capture every photon we could, so we only had rods. We all, there were no cones. And then when we're up in trees, we no longer need all of those rods, just like we no longer needed to generate our own vitamin C. And they, they simply degraded and then found some new use. They became four diff- three different kinds of cones. And that's how we got color vision. So you can see how the addictions keep on floating around. We get addicted to different things that get us, that in turn mean that if we're going to do the dedicated work, like I'm now addicted to cars and money because I'm addicted to grocery stores because I had two ways to get food. So you can see how the whole thing, uh, it ends up leading to, it ends up with this one interesting uh, connection to the whole thing about modern society. Um, it's almost being what? addicted to the technology now. Totally addicted to the technology. But the funny thing about it is that the technology is so reliable that we don't notice that we're addicted to it. People feel more independent than they ever have, and they are more dependent than they ever were. I agree. 100%. We're all, yeah. uh, we're Elon totally must say addicted. that we're a cyborg you know, with, with our phones now. That yeah. you know, Without it, we feel like we're, we have a, a missing piece to us. Right. And not only that, our capacity to memorize telephone numbers is totally atrophied. Right. Because you don't need it anymore. So that's, again, a story of redundancy and relaxation. And by the way, I have a master's in public policy, which meant a whole lot of study of microeconomics. Microeconomics is all about this. All that stuff in microeconomics about elasticity of demand, how much you would pay uh, to, to, to maintain access to something, brand loyalty. All of that is about this business, you could say doing dedicated work to maintain something you depend upon. And so, yeah. And, and so you, so I'm not addicted to a particular grocery store. It could go because there are other grocery stores. So my loyalty isn't, isn't big there. And, and, and to tie this into sex, love and romance, the big challenge these days 
is how are you going to get someone to become exclusively dedicated to you, dependent upon you? That's a harder challenge than it was in my generation, which was uh, which was a harder gen- uh, challenge than it was for my parents' generation. We just have so many more things we can do in the evening, so many more ways to find potential partners. Uh-huh. All of that stuff plays in here. It's harder to make. It's harder to get someone convinced to be totally loyal to you forever. I agree with I mean, you know, I, yeah. I, you know, I'm 35 years old and single, no kids, never been married, and all that good. Well, not good stuff, but I guess you could say. But it's just that, yeah, I don't know if it's. There's always looking for something better. There's it's so easy to be accessible to anybody on this planet. Right. That that's right. Yeah, and it's I, you know, it could be my environment, the way I grew up. I don't, you know, it could be a lot of different things to that. But yeah, it's changing. Yeah. It's changing rapidly, and I and I watch you guys with fascination. So I have two kids about your age who are married and look like they're going to be able to make uh, that it last. Never can tell, but it looks that way. I don't. I, I'm indifferent to it. That is, I try to be hands off with my kids now that they're over eight, 18 years old. Sure. But there's still a, but, but I look at a bunch of, if I were, if I were of your generation, I'd have an even harder time committing like that than I did back then. I mean, we, I mean, we haven't, uh, I haven't even mentioned what pornography does to this. Um, but obviously, that's also a factor. Well, and, that and, changes the game when pornography oh, yeah. comes into effect. It, it almost revolutionizes almost how well, we talked about modern society will act. You no, know? totally. Yeah. And in, in lots of interesting ways that could turn out good or bad. I mean, in my case, um, it, yeah, mine, mine still, the jury's still out on it. But I, I did notice at one point that it, it kept me away from what was beginning to look kind of cultish. That is, if you think about where else in the world, other than in marriage, do you pledge to feel emotionally enthusiastic for the rest of your life? In, in cults. It's, it's actually got something in common with that. Um, that is, you're, going, you're pledging your life away to something, and you're not just pledging that you will stay there dutifully. You're pledging that you're going to be enthusiastic at 90. Well, that's a that's a wild thing for people to do. And in a way, I prefer to meet people as human beings and not have all of that uh, coming at each other with the cookie cutter thing that culture imposes. Um, in a way, uh, pornography helps relax. It's it's a way to get jaded on something that could not be that very good for an individual. It, I mean, I spent a whole lot of years sweating bullets over partnership and how I was going to get the, the woman of my dreams, how I was going to keep her. I, I, I had many relationships in which the breakup, you know, incapacitated me for months. Um, and then in retrospect, I look at that and I think, no, nah, it's kind of a waste of time. It wasn't that what it wasn't what I thought it was. On the other hand, it is it's wreaking all sorts of havoc on women, um, some women, most women, I would say. And it's also um, it's it is causing problems. There's a lot of guys who you could say there's even a relaxed selection story there. You don't actually need to perform well in order to, to get off to pornography. You could lose the capacity to perform well. If, if you became a pornosexual, as I described them, I, I gave it that name. There are plenty of pornosexuals, but they may have lost the ability to actually do sex, not just relationship, but sex. But just so, because so really, they're dependent on the pornography compared to actually real life sex. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you, if, because remember, 
you don't have to, part of the fun of it, I think of, uh, I think of pornography as like W, the WWF for sex. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go. I, I get that. Yeah. With WWF. So, uh, so uh, I mean, cause it's, they're going through the motions and they're not even great actors, but, but, um, but it's still impressive enough to us because the appetite for it is so strong, whether it be the violence in WWF or the, the libido, but um yeah, it, it it is changing the game, as you say, and 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 how is a really interesting question. There's a bunch of how how things are changing questions that uh, are worth exploring, and and the jury's still out on them. Well, I mean, it's Let's, just because that it seems that you know, um, you know, I don't know if you know who Colin Cowherd is, but he's a sports well sports broadcaster analyst. But anyway, he said that you know, pornography is a uh, a billion dollar industry, and you know. When you say that, people are like, oh, no, don't talk about that. That's bad. You should never say that. And like, well, why is it a billion-dollar industry? People are watching it. You might say it's bad, but people are watching it. And There's a, there's a great book on this subject. There's, uh, uh, some psychologists did uh, analysis of Internet traffic and uh, are just listing all of the ways in which we are not what we, what we claim to be. That is the evidence is in now. We now know what people do, what people seek in a way we never did before. And it's startling. It's not good for the romanticized version of human beings. Um, yeah, I could look up the name of it. I read it maybe four years ago. Um, but it, but this would be an example of it. It is a billion dollar industry, um, it, it, which is remarkable also because so much of it is available for free at a rate too cheap to meter. So, I mean, so what the hell? I mean, okay. I never spent any money on it. I like Maybe that. I should have. Like a rate too cheap to meter. I like that. I like that a lot. But yeah, that's I mean, what they said. That's what they said about nuclear power back in the sixties. That it was gonna, it was energy too cheap to meter, is what they said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, but yeah, I mean, but I feel like, I mean, kind of relating to this is that we saw during the pandemic, you know, a lot of businesses went under and especially in California with the restaurants and things of that yeah. nature. But a lot of, I don't want, I don't know if I said, who cares, whatever. So a lot of girls turned to OnlyFans and that, you know, just selling, or I don't even really know how OnlyFans works, but they were selling pictures of their feet. And they're subscribing. They were making tons of money. The girl who, uh, the Catch Me Outside girl who was on, um, I think she was on Dr. Phil maybe. But yeah, she, she joined <laughs> OnlyFans and made a million dollars in like a, a night or something. And it was, yeah, I, yeah, I'm amazed. I, it, yeah, it's an industry I don't understand. I've watched some of Deuce. Did you ever see that series, The Deuce? The Deuce. Is that on HBO? I, I, maybe? I think it might be. James, sounds, uh, James Franco? James Franco. James Franco. Okay, I think I may have watched a little bit of it. I don't know if I ever caught on to it. No, but it was a, it was it's basically a historical account of two guys out of San Francisco who really helped create the industry. Um, and one of the early one of the early parts of it is uh, the the invention of the uh, the booth within the porn shop where you could put the quarters in, and it was the first time they got direct market feedback on what people were interested in watching. It was the first time people could channel surf porn, and so that was a part of the that was a part of the series that interested me most. Is they're they're trying to figure out what human appetites really are, and that was the first evidence they got of it because they have all these channels on and they could tell what what people were putting the quarters in for. 
This is radical, radical difference. Just like, you know, just like Amazon does that now. You know, we now know what people want in a way we never did before. And it's a little trauma, traumatic. You know, there's a big issue right now in AI because AI is designed to map onto what humans want, mm -hmm. but they keep on running up against this difference, what we call the aspirational gap, the gap between what people want and what people, what we wish they'd want. And, um, and it's a little alarming. So you get a whole lot of, uh, you know, the, the, when AI starts tracking conversations and then imitating those conversations, it comes out being kind of racist and obnoxious. I mean, we're <laughs> there right. We're, we're there right now with AI tracking, and yeah, yeah, it's like yeah. telling us what we like and what we don't like. Right, and and it can map pretty well, not perfectly, to what we like. But what we like isn't not isn't necessarily what we aspire to like or should like. So, how AI handles that is a really interesting question. The gap, the gap between what we have, what we are, and what we want to be, the aspirational gap. I love that concept. Um, yeah, it's it's being stretched in new ways because we're seeing who we really are. And I think that also explains a lot of the cultish backlash where people pretend they, they give lip service to being different from what they are. All the versions of woke are like this. And I think of MAGA as just another woke movement, um, it, you know. But it's basically grandstanding as though you're somehow an exception, purer than everybody else. You don't change your behavior. You just go out and scold everybody else for not walking your talk. That's basically what it comes down to. Um, I mean, that's basically what woke culture is. Yeah, but woke culture, uh, just, for the, just to be clear, clear, Islam was a woke culture. Christianity was a woke culture. If you actually look at what's going on, it's not about what they believe. It's I not about what any of them believe about. No, I would say that if you look at what's the, the heart of what woke is, is um, it's got a lot in common with the Matrix or Plato's cave story. Basically, that you realize you've been delusional. It's, I once was lost and now I'm found. Um, as if, and it's a funny metaphor because I wake up every morning and then I'm drowsy by the night. But there's a sense with wokeness, whether it be MAGA woke or left-wing woke or whatever, that you wake up once and for all, and now you are on the side of virtue. Uh, you are no longer part of the problem. You are the part of the solution. It's basically, my definition of a cult is basically the, it's the plural form of asshole. So you got gaggles of geese and cults of assholes. You can be an asshole without a cult, but if you get a bunch of them together, they're going to be woke. They're going to talk like they had, like it's sudden school, like born again. That that whole appetite in humans to clean the slate and then be pure and good and on the side of virtue from here on out. The same experience I described when I came out of the Iron Man movie and decided I was on Iron Man's team. I was woke and now I'm on Iron Man's team, which means that if anybody ever challenges me, they're challenging Iron Man. And that's not that's not going to go down with me. That's that's woke. Just it's just generic. Yeah. Buddhists have their version of it. It's not a. It's not about what they believe. It never is. It's about the sense that you could actually free yourself from doubt because you know already that you're part of the solution, not part of the problem. 
And that's exactly what the MAGA people got going. That's exactly what my leftist buddies, uh, I have a few remaining leftist buddies who talk like this. After all, I lived on a hippie commune, right? So, so I have some woke friends, right? right I live in course. Berkeley, right? right. So, so yeah, the, the, it, it's the same from any of them. I, I got all these friends who keep on saying, love is the answer. Like, like they're always loving. Or you should always be open-minded, like you could always be open-minded. You know, or like they are because they say that it's good. You know, because I because I sign off on love being the answer, I must that proves that I'm loving. Like, no, it doesn't. Not I, I call that talk. I call that talk is walkism. That is whatever I declare about myself must be true. You know, <laughs> no, you don't. No, my believe me, I'm a good person. You know, that kind of you stuff. Say, no, yeah, I agree. Yeah, talk yeah. is walkism. Like, like my talk. Like I can accurately describe what I am. No, I can't. <laughs> yeah, well, a lot of people think they can, but when it's what is it versus actions and what you actually do behind that's the scenes, right. That's the right. Cur- like the wizard behind the curtain. And in a way, on? we come back around to language because once again, you couldn't do that. Your dog can't do that. He, your dog can't give lip service to anything but a bone. But we humans can get lip service to all sorts of stuff. Yeah. I can just say that, you know, I, I could read something that, that makes my heart swell and then claim that because I read it, I'm doing it. And I, I basically talk about it instead of doing it. That's all. I mean, schizophrenia, does that play into that? Yeah, um, sort of. You, you're or dual yeah, personalities. In a way, or well, maybe, you could is say, that the word yes, in a way. Maybe? I don't know. Yeah. So, so here's, remember, I was talking about, um, uh, on a hallucinogen while you're in the men in black uh, terminal. Yeah. I would say that all of us have some of that going on is that we're all a little schizophrenic, not in the old fashioned sense of meaning, um, you know, they used to be roses are red, violets are blue. I'm schizophrenic. And so am I. That's um, no, not like, you ever heard that? No, it's, it's cute. Roses are red, violets are blue. Uh, I mean, I'm schizophrenic. Rhymes, I like and so it. am I. So I come from but a that's, very rural, like, you know, a uh, place where I grew up as. So, like, the biggest city is Charlotte, and D.C. is about four hours from me. So, yeah. 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 I don't think so, I was related to much of that. So, schizophrenic doesn't mean that anymore. It's it's something else. It's about hallucinations um, and about um, not having a coherent picture of the world, that the world is too fractured for you. That's a, that's a definition of it now. You, you perceive it in ways that do not cohere. You can't make sense of it, or you make some sense that is co- totally disrelated, unrelated to the reality you're in. So I'm saying that language gives us all a little bit of that. And that's one of the reasons why I am never going to talk like that. No one could say to me, don't tell me how I feel. No, here's what I mean. I, I will never say, don't tell me how I feel. Because you look around, it's obvious that all sorts of people don't know what they're feeling. I am obviously not the absolute authority on what I'm feeling. Um, I can make guesses about it. Other people could make other guesses. We can have our respective guesses about what we're feeling. But no one gets to claim authority on what I'm feeling, and I don't get to claim authority on my, what I'm feeling either. That is it. I'm in some ways I'd be the last person to know how to accurately describe myself. That, I mean, I say that about all of us. You, you, self-knowledge is quite limited. I don't want to. There's things about me I don't want to know. I'm busy not knowing them. So, so it's better if somebody can tell you how, no, how they know you better than you know yourself. No, it's a no. I'm guessing. See, from my perspective, it's all guesswork, and we're trying to make better guesses. 
I'm not saying all guesses are as good, but I'm saying that no one else is in a position. In some ways, other people are in a better position to tell me what to do because they're outside of me. On the other hand, they bring their own perspective and biases. And then I bring my own perspective and biases. So I'm not necessarily the authority. I don't think there is a way to get to your authentic self. Here's another way I disagree with some of my more woke leftist friends. I don't, I think it's hard to figure that stuff out. I can make good, I can try to make good guesses about what's going on with me. I can listen to other people's guesses about what's going on with me. And from them, I'll try to synthesize some good guesses. But it's all guessing for me. I mean, I'm, in, in philosophy, it's called fallibilism. So the motto of a fallibilist is no matter how confident I am in a bet, I'm still more confident that it is a bet. Every, everything we do is a bet. And here we're back to trying. Yoda was wrong. There's only trying. You know, he says, there is no try. There's do or not do. Bullshit. No, there's only trying. Organisms have been trying since the beginning. You can try and be wrong. That's just, that's just the sorry, sad case. Of, so I relax into the fact that I'm just guessing. I'm just guessing whether I'm too arrogant or not arrogant enough for a situation. I'm guessing whether I'm too loving or too caring or not caring enough in a situation. I try to make good guesses. That's all I get to do. And I'll be doing it lifelong. I don't, I don't get woke. I, nothing can wake me up to where I can have confidence that I've nailed it. That's not how it works. <laughs> well, Jeremy Sherman, we're, we're uh, got a couple more questions. I know we're we're kind of getting on time here, but um, you know, we we talked about um, human origins and life and decision making and human nature and cults and religion and yes, all this stuff. All yeah, you know, and this has been a lot of fun and. You know, I like to. I, there's a couple more questions I do want to ask, but I, yeah, I, go I, ahead. I, no, well, I, I don't. And I'll, I'll try, give you short answers. Well, I'll try to reflect on our time here, just because I do like yeah. asking certain questions, and I think it's a lot of fun to ask about. Yeah. But, uh, um. Well, I guess we can talk about one before the last one. I want to ask. Okay. Uh. So you know, we talked. You know, talking about what I just said about human nature and life and human origins. I mean, do you do you subscribe to simulation? Uh, um simulation reality and life that we're living in a simulation and, or that we were dropped off by, you know, ah, good, species good. <laughs> or. So this, this is a um, uh, short answer is no, but, uh, but the uh, slightly longer answer is. Um, the um, we are interacting so this, this original question comes up with a guy named Lord Barclay, who basically noticed this. He says, I'm going to give you two models. Uh, one is that there's, um, let's see if I can remember this. There's you, your, there's your, your behavior, your, your perception, and reality. And the other is that you, there's your behavior and your perception. Okay, this one's got three elements. This one's got two. And so this is a better model because there's no difference between them. They both explain everything. That is, this could all be a simulation is basically what he's saying. Okay. Um, uh, so he was one of the first, at least in the West, to bring this up. The Taoists had a version of this long before. Uh, uh, Chuang Tzu said, um, Am, uh, I dreamt of a butterfly. Is that, you know, is, was the dream the reality or is my real life reality? Here's where I come down on this. Um, 
whether it doesn't matter to me whether it's a simulation. The fact is that if I screw it up, I die. That is, whether it's a simulation or it's reality, it'll fuck me up if I do it wrong. If I screw it up, it'll cost me. And that's that's real enough to me that I, I'm over the question of it's all, all simulation. If it is a simulation, it's a very convincing one in that I hear I am trying not to die. That's my will. I'm trying not to die. All organisms are trying not to die. And I'm doing it in interaction with reliable habits of the universe. Whether those the habits of the universe are a simulation or not doesn't matter to me. I think that the idea of the simulation is often just like the idea of a supernatural thing. It's like someone saying, you're you trying to make a decision with someone and then they, say, they said, yeah, but what if there's a wild card that changes everything? And you say, okay, well, but we got to make a decision. And they say, yeah, but what if there's a wild card? He says, could you know anything about the wild card? No, it's a total mystery. Well, then it's irrelevant. I mean, if we don't know what, if we can't find out anything about it, you know, what the real world is like, then I'm not interested in it. I'm trying to make decisions with what we know. And if you throw a wild card in there or a wild card trump card, like the supernatural, because uh, the supernatural is permanently, or the simulation, what's going on behind the simulation, it's permanently off in inaccessible. You could never know anything about it. That makes it a wild card. And it's supposed to trump everything else uh, in reality. So God's a mystery, and it's bigger than anything in reality. I think that's just the appetite for escapism playing out. So my short answer is no. I don't bet it's a simulation. But even if it is, it doesn't make any difference to what I do, because I still don't want to crash my car into something and die. That's all. Even 100%. if the car is a simulation, I, I'm, I'm, I'm living here. <laughs> I agree 100%. As long as I can. So that was that question. Okay, good. All right. So final question, and we'll take this one home on this one. Okay. I, I, I like asking this one just because especially what you, you and I have been talking about all night. Um, good, a good Friday night ending question, I guess. Um, good. So uh, what, what is the meaning of life? Ah, um, so and, I don't in your perspective. Yeah, no. So in my work, we say uh, meaning is real, but has no ultimate or primary meaning. So think about it. I'm, I'm working on trying. Trying is basically doing things that matter to you. So I'm working on how mattering emerges from matter. And for the first 10 billion years in this universe's history, from what we can tell, there was nothing that happened because it mattered. It was all physical chemistry. And then mattering emerged with the first organisms. So mattering or meaning starts with life. And every organism has its own particular mattering. The meaning is real. So if you're talking about what is meaning for living beings, I can describe that. If I, if I want to talk about what is, what is it about life that makes it so that things mean things to organisms? That I can talk about. But a universal meaning, what it means for the universe, I don't think it means anything to the universe. I could be wrong about that. I'm just a member of this generation's uh, researchers. We, and the evidence here solidly points to nothing for the first two-thirds of the universe's history that mattered at all. And I've had big debates with theologians. A, a famous theologian was a neighbor of mine, and we went at it one night. Uh, I said, I said, what's the which came first, matter or mattering? 
And he said, oh, Mattering did. And I said, no, Mattered came first. And we went at it for a while. And then I said, okay, we're not getting anywhere with this. Can we, can I ask you a different question? Um, why are two grown men speculating about this with such fire? And he said, I won't, I won't address that with you. I said, why not? He said, because that would imply that I have a bias or a personal stake in thinking that mattering came first. So in my case, I actually don't think that life has a fundamental meaning. I could say this, though. The meaning of life is not to end it. I think that's about as universal as I get. The meaning of life is not to end life. I mean, this is a fabulous game. That's beautiful. And also, I'd even say something that some people consider to be arrogantly human. The meaning of life is not to end especially symbolic life, languaged life. Why? Because we're the only things in the universe can speculate about the whole wall, ball of wax and us in it. Nothing else in the universe has the scope to try and guess what this all is. So that's where I've ended up spending my life, is trying to figure out this whole, you know, my favorite thing to do is to sit on the front porch of the universe with a dude like you, and speculate about the universe and us in it. That's my idea of a good time. It seems like I a love that. good way to use your discretionary time. And that's something only humans can do. Your dog, I, I love your dog, uh, <laughs> but no, but your dog ain't going to be able to do that. He doesn't have language. <laughs> I agree 100%. Okay. All right. That, that's beautiful, dude. I, I love that. And I think we should take that home on this one. All right, man. It's really nice to talk with you. All right, all right, so before we, uh, before we uh, get off here, um, so if anybody wants to, Check your social medias or look you up. I know yes. you said you're on Psychology Today. Uh, yeah, so tell everybody how so, they do that. So you you could Google my name and you'll find way too much of me in all sorts of forms, videos, all that. I've got three podcasts going. One is called Negotiate with Yourself and Win, uh, in which I debate myself. It's a it's an argument with my it's arguments with myself. I have one called To Name It Is to Tame It, where I basically these are terms for tracking. Uh, Terms for reading between the lines with greater comprehension. And then I've got this one that's basically my book for free, me, me reading the whole thing, What's Up with Assholes, uh, Advanced Psychoproctology <laughs> for Beginners. Um, but I also have a web page, which is just jeremysherman.com. And if you go on there, you'll find more than enough of me. I have to listen to me, but you don't. So, no, so this, this was this was a great conversation. I really enjoyed. Good. This was a lot of fun, Doctor Jeremy. All right, good man. Uh, so uh, that's how you find Doctor Jeremy Sherman right there. Um, JeremySherman.com. Right there it is, and that's all I have. Anything else before we? Uh, no, th just other th other than thank you. This is sweet. Thank you. All right, all right. Bye, everybody. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line 
prop or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. 